Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we're going to continue to make headway here in, in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you think about it, words, words are powerful. Words actually are worth fighting for, and words throughout history have been worth dying for. And if you put words into the hands of a great speech giver, if you put words, powerful words, on the lips of somebody with oratory skill, that, that combination can be life-changing and unstoppable. If you put words with somebody who can spin words and say words and inspire through their words, that sometimes changes things in an unstoppable manner. And it was illustrated uh, in no greater way, actually, as we celebrate Memorial Day today, in the battle of ideologies and rhetoric in World War II. If you want to see how speech affects a group of people, look no further than how Adolf Hitler used words of pan-Germanism and anti-Semitism to play on the fear and hatred and insecurity of the Germanic people. And through charismatic oratory, he convinced everyday Germans to commit some of the most unimaginable atrocities and heinous crimes against mankind the world against mankind the world has ever seen through words through speech he could he could take somebody and and cause them to do things that they would never imagine this was countered and ultimately conquered by the leading words of Winston Churchill, inspiring Britain to stand and fight and never quit until victory was reached. And Winston Churchill had a speech that he gave uh, to the House of Commons. And I can't do a, a stuffy British accent, so I'm not even going to try. Okay? But just imagine kind of a stuffy British accent with big cheeks. Okay? Well, I have big cheeks, but not Winston Churchill cheeks here. But he said this to the House of Commons, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea and land and air with all our might and with all our strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny, never surpassed uh, in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be, for without victory, there is no survival. World War II, in some ways, was a battle of rhetoric. It was a battle of words. It was a battle of speech-giving. And and one leader inspired his people to commit atrocities that, again, I I pray the world will never see again in, in in the mass murder of millions of people. And yet another man used words to inspire his people to victory. But words are powerful, and words in, in, in put on the lips of, a, of, a, of an orator who can spin those words can, can somehow and sometimes lead you to follow that person. Well, this, that idea is largely what was at play 
in the church at Corinth. At the church at Corinth, uh, they loved the orators. They loved the speakers. They loved those who could spin words and put words together. And even if, if those words may or may not be true, it didn't matter because if you could spin them well, they would follow those people. And that's, that's the context of what Paul was, was coming into in Corinth, and that's what he was fighting against. Because what was happening is you'd have people even in the church who spoke better than others. And when they spoke better, more people followed them. And, and then other people would say, I don't want to follow them, I want to follow this person. And what happened was all of this infighting and division, and they were following men arrogantly instead of God. And for the last uh, section, for this whole first section, what Paul has been doing is saying, you guys are missing the entire point of the gospel. You're missing the entire point of how I even set this thing called the church up. You're missing the point because you are judging things based on your standards of wisdom. You're basing things on your standards of how you think it should be. And here's the point they missed. Okay, here's, here's what we, what's been driven home in my mind in this first couple, this first chapter of 1 Corinthians is God, listen, the most wise and awesome and powerful creator that we've ever known in God himself proactively chose to do things in a dramatically foolish way. God chose to do things. God chose to do things in a way that in our minds will always seem foolish. And in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, we see that he, in a dramatic way, he gave us a foolish message, a foolish means of salvation. And, and it's, it's the cross, which ironically, the light went out on the cross today, huh? Hopefully that's no, I don't believe in like signs, but if I did, wow, that'd be bad, okay? But, but he gave us this, this foolish message and this foolish means of salvation in the cross. It doesn't make sense. It's moronic. It's scandalous to people's minds. And yet God says, I'm going to save people in this way through the means of a torturous device and the Messiah is actually going to die for you. And then last week we looked in uh, chapter 1, verses 26 to the end, and God put salvation in the hands of foolish messengers. He chose foolish people. He chose the dregs of the world. He chose people who were not in the world and gave them and entrusted them with this message of the gospel. In other words, if we look in the mirror, and I thought about this last week, right? The problem with looking in the mirror is some of us, usually guys, like we look in the mirror and we think, yeah, man, we're looking good, right? You know, I think some of you ladies look in the mirror and you find every imperfection. You understand a guy looks in the mirror and thinks he sees the Adonis in his mind that he is, right? Ooh, looking good, right? And <laughs> that's really how we are. And, uh, but we, we see what we want to see. But, but what Paul said is look in the mirror and see that God chose proactively in his wisdom to not take the, the cream of the crop, the best the world has to offer, the most uh, intelligent, intellectual uh, group of people. He chose a stratified group of people, some that had nothing to offer and some had a lot to offer, and that's who he chose. He did it in a foolish way. 
And what Paul is going to now capstone, what he's going to bring about is not only did God give us a foolish message of the cross, not only did he place that in the hands of foolish messengers like you and I, but he gave us a really foolish message to get the gospel out. I'm sorry, method. He gave us a very foolish method to get the gospel out. I've often said, God, why, why don't you just, couldn't you just put a, put a big HD TV screen in the sky and, and without a shadow of a doubt prove once and for all, for all people, who you are, that you exist, that you're a redeemer of people, and that people would be left not unaware anymore of who you are. Why don't you just do it that way? And God could have brought about, brought about salvation in a lot of different ways, I guess. But he chose to do it this way, and he put the method of bringing the gospel to the world in the hands of you and in the hands of me. And when we bring that, method, that, that message, that foolish message, message to people, in a way that is even foolish, it strips us of all—listen— It strips us of all self-reliance. The way that God designed this whole thing, the church, the gospel, evangelism, reaching the world with the gospel, he did it to strip us of self-reliance, of self-dependency. He did it in a way that says, God, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to believe this, I have to trust you because in my mind this doesn't make any sense. And yet I'm going to trust you and move forward in it. That's Paul's point of this whole section. And we'll find that in verse 5, he does does that all so that God gets the glory, but that his power shines through in us instead of our own wisdom. Okay, let's look at chapter 2, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 2, verse 1. And Paul's going to start with the foolish content of the gospel Message: The foolish content of the gospel message. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says this, and actually let's read all the way down to verse 5. But we'll, we'll, we'll come back to verses 1 and 2. He says this, And when, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, flowery, flowery words, For I decided or determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? Why did God give us that way of doing it? Because of verse 5 so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The foolish content of the gospel message. And the first is this, that uh, Paul was given over to the proclamation of God's testimony. The proclamation of God's testimony. And like I've already said, and and we've already seen, is the, the source and cause of these divisions among the church is that they were trusting in themselves and trusting in their own wisdom and relying on their own ability to spin words, to gain a following. And if they gained a following and had people follow them versus following this person, it created division. 
it created infighting. It created a lack of unity. It, it, it meant they were disjointed. They didn't have a common vision and a common purpose in the world. And, and we know this. We have to understand the context of what, uh, of what was going on in the city. Uh, an author wrote this about what was going on in Corinth at the time. In the ancient world, a public speaker's initial visit to a city was critical to establishing their reputation. Orators would compete for applause and offer entertainment to diners in between courses at the best banquets. Competitive showmanship was the order of the day. In contrast to the orators uh, who wowed the citizens of Corinth, Paul repudiated the sophistic method of presenting himself when he came to Corinth. In short, he was uh, concerned not with projecting an image of himself, but rather of Jesus Christ. What's important to remember in this whole discussion, okay, because if you take these verses out of context, it would seem like Paul is saying uh, that he didn't prepare, that he wasn't trying to be persuasive, that he wasn't logical, that he didn't use his intellect, that he didn't use the wisdom that he had from the Lord in any of his speeches. And that's not true. In other words, we know later on, Paul says, I did try to persuade you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, I'm trying to persuade and beg and, and do whatever I can. If you see even how 1 Corinthians is written, 1 Corinthians is written in a very wise way. But what is, what is Paul getting at here? What's his point that he came proclaiming the testimony of God, not in lofty wisdom? What's he, what's he trying to get at? Well, here's, here's what it is, is, is what is the testimony of God in some of your translations? I don't know if any of you, in your translations, it says the mystery of God. I came to you proclaiming the mystery. Anybody have mystery of God in their translation? Anybody have a footnote about that it could be the mystery of God in your translation? All right, I won't even bother with it. There's some that say they think it's the mystery, uh, but it's the testimony of God. What, it doesn't even matter if it, what, what it is. Both words, although more especially mystery, emphasize that what is conveyed in Christian proclamation is truth revealed by God, not human opinions. The reason why Paul didn't play the cultural game with the people, in other words, he didn't come... If he wanted to, to, to interact with the culture, he would have to one-up the culture. That was this competitive gamesmanship among the orators of the culture, right? So, so if that's the cultural norm, you have to be dramatic. You have to, to one-up them to get any attention. You have to be that uh, either dynamic or say something that would get a reaction out of people. And Paul says, I'm not going to do that. Because what these guys are trying to do is have people follow them. I'm trying to get people to follow Christ. And so he chooses not to play their cultural game. And he says, I'm just going to proclaim the testimony of God. And what is the testimony of God? It's, it's something that isn't conjured up by man's testimony. It's not conjured up by our wisdom. It's something given divinely by God to man. And here's what it is, is that, is that God has always demanded perfect people. If you're here today, what God demands of you is perfection. 
He wants you to be perfect. And not only wants, he demands you to be perfect. If you want to worship him, you need to be perfect. If you want to follow him, you need to be perfect. If you want to be a part of his family, you need to be perfect. Perfection is the standard that God demands for you. Now, some of you know this because when you ask for your wife's hand in marriage, that's what your father-in-law demanded of you, right? True? That's what my father-in-law demanded of all my other brother-in-laws. They made an exception for me, right? So, so, but, but perfection, and you go, wait a second, that's the disconnect, because all of us know that we're not perfect. And sometimes we think, well, did God then did God then lessen, lessen his demands on us? Did he lessen his demands for us to let us into his kingdom? And I'll tell you this, if God had simply forgiven us, this is what we want from God sometimes. God, just forgive the sin of the world, and then people can be saved and they can have a relationship. Just, just forgive them. And we, we tell this to people, man, find those that are distant from God and know that God forgives them. If God had done that, he would have been less than holy and less than perfect. Understand that. If God, God would stop being God if all he did was forgive people without payment for that sin. And so the testimony of God is this, is that he always has demanded perfect people. He still does. He demands that of you today, and every day you fall short of that standard. Every single day. And there's no one in here who hasn't fallen short. And so that's where Jesus Christ, the man and the work of Jesus Christ comes in, who was the perfect person, who lived a perfect life and died a perfect death. And when Jesus Christ hung on the cross and took your place and took my place, Jesus Christ became not only just, but justifier is what Romans 3 says. He was completely just because he never sinned, and yet he justified you, which means he gave you his perfection. In other words, the reason why God accepts us now is because we have the perfect work of Jesus Christ applied to our lives. That's why you are you can be positionally perfect in Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross. So God still has demanded perfection. And in Jesus Christ, you can be positionally perfect even though every day you sin. That is the testimony of God. And so Paul says, and, and I'll tell you, that message is foolish. That message is crazy that the Messiah of this world would, would allow himself to die on a cross on a, on a, on, in the most heinous way. And so that's the testimony that Paul came to proclaim. And he says, I'm going to stick to my guns and give that message instead of trying to one-up and trying to, trying to get above the crowd and get above the fray and try to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, so dramatic or dynamic that, that now I have a platform. I'm just going to stay down here and keep proclaiming the message. Verse 2, this is what he says. There is a resolution to stay on target. There's a resolution to stay on target. Verse 2 says this, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That word decided is the word resolution. In other words, Paul came to Corinth and he, and he made a resolution in his mind. He made up his mind before he got there that this is the method that he was going to go about it. This was, this was the way that he was going to reach the city. 
He was going to reach the city not by dropping pamphlets from the sky and not by doing events necessarily. What he was going to do was he was going to interact with people and he was going to proclaim the testimony of God and he was going to go know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. Which didn't mean, I I thought of this, I'm going, if you just take verse 2 out of context, if you take verse 2 and it's like, well, that seems so simplistic that all Paul ever talked about was Christ and him crucified. Hey, Paul, can we talk about life today? Can we talk about how business is going? Well, Christ and him crucified. Did he just come back to that in, in 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 a very simplistic way? And the answer is obviously no. Because all through 1 Corinthians, he's talked about other issues in the church. He's talked about marriage and singleness and divorce and church services and corporate worship and communion and and the resurrection, this essential doctrine of salvation. He talked about the resurrection. So he talked about a myriad of other things except Christ and him crucified. So what does it mean... What does it mean in verse 2 that Paul resolved in his mind that he wasn't going to really know anything among them except Christ and him crucified? I think it means three things. Three things. One is this. That Christ crucified, coming back to Christ and his crucifixion, kept the message clear. There was clarity. There was clarity in this message. There is, there is such a draw, even, even back then and today, to be unclear about what it means to be saved, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It is very unclear out in the world. And here's why it's unclear, is because we always want, we're, we, we drift toward, we, we have this pull toward adding things to salvation. We want to add things on top of the work of Jesus Christ and being saved by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone, through the word alone. We want to add things on top, and what we want to add is something else we can do. There is always this pull to add our own merit, our own work, on top of the free salvation offered by Jesus Christ. We want to do something. We want to, can't I add some layer? Can't I work with Jesus in salvation? And the answer to that question is no. See, the message of Christ and him crucified keeps salvation, the gospel, clear. Because it is only by the work of Jesus Christ, it is only through the work of his crucifixion that we can be saved. That's it. So, so Paul did that to keep the message clear. The second thing is this. Why did he continually come back? Because he wanted to be relentless. Relentless. I would say Paul was relentlessly coming back to this message of Christ and him crucified. And here's, here's why that is so great. Mike said it in his testimony. Mike said it in his testimony when he said through all the other ramblings and mumblings that he did, right? Is, is, that, is that he said, wait, you're talking about the gospel. I, I've already talked about the gospel when I was seven years old and I prayed a prayer. How does Jesus or him crucified matter in my life today? And the answer is it matters 
for everything in your life today. In other words, Paul would say this, the gospel, which is the center of the gospel is Jesus. And the center of Jesus is his death, his, his propitiation, his atonement on the cross is the center, not only of your salvation at one point in time, but it is the center and the core of your life every day. And it's very interesting. If you, if you read through the whole of 1 Corinthians, it's that Paul is going to address a myriad of issues in the church. Christian liberty and Christian freedom and problems in marriage and problems in the church and problems in unity. And, and instead of, and even in these first four chapters, there's division going on. And I would think if there's division going on, I would go back and I'd say, here's the problem, you, you jerks. Here's the problem, <laughs> as I'm saying that I should Here's the problem with your division is you got to change the way you, you speak, right? That's like, stop speaking this way and start speaking a different way. And Paul doesn't do that. What does he come back to to help the church change from their divisions? He comes back to Christ and him crucified. This whole first one and a half chapters is to clarify and re-clarify the gospel for this group of people. You see, we never get too far away from the gospel, we, never, we should never get too far away from the message of Christ and him crucified. And when we do, we're ineffective. When we do, we are disunified. When we do, we lose power and influence. Because the further away from Christ and him crucified we get, the more we rely on ourself and our own wisdom to figure out all of life. And here's, here's I guess, how I could illustrate that. Is, is you take the cross, right? And sometimes in the church, we think, well, the cross is great on Sundays, or the cross is what we talk about when we share the gospel, even evangelistically with somebody. But for the rest of life, it doesn't really come to bear. And the further away from the cross you get, ready? Two things happen. One is, the further away you get from this unlit cross over here is... is is I personally, this is, this is what happens to me personally, I get more and more, I'm not even going to let you fill in the blank because I'm being scared of what the blank is, what you guys say, okay? But I get more and more arrogant, more and more self-trusting as I get away from the cross. And so you get more and more boastful, more and more that you trust in your own intellect, your own ability, your own gifts. You start trusting yourself more and more the further away from the cross you get. That's me. That's mine. There's others of you who the further and further you get away from the cross, the more you start limping. The more you start getting focused on the harshness of life, on your own sin, on your own shame, and, and you, start, you start walking away from the cross and you get more and more wounded. There is less joy the further away from the cross you get. Listen, at the, at the cross, there is no puffed up chests at the cross. There's also no limping at the cross. And, and when we come back to the cross, we... Uh, There's no swagger, no limping out of the cross. We come to the cross, listen, depressed. If you're depressed this morning, if if you have been going through things and you've been internal with all of the stuff that you've been dealing with and you, you are just depressed, it's because you've gotten away from the cross. If you come to the cross depressed, you leave in joy. 
if you come to the cross, uh, if you come to the cross wrapped up in your own pride, you leave with proper humility before God and others. If you come thinking that all of life and even God is against you, Sometimes we think that, right? Man, you don't understand what's going on in my life. It's all crashing down. And it is all happening to me. Why is God not for me? Why is God against me? And why is everybody else against me? And you come back to the cross and you realize that God could not be any more for you in Jesus Christ. We come uh, we come hoping that God, listen, we come to the cross hoping that God would change our spouse. <laughs> that's, that's the irony of life, right? You, you think, God, I, I've walked, I, I, I'm walking this life, God, fix my marriage, and here's how you fix my marriage, is that I want you to fix my spouse. Change them. I am miserable in my marriage, and it's because of my spouse. Change them. You come to the cross, and you realize that God is using your spouse to change you. We come to the cross. We come to the cross hoping that our temporal circumstances would change, and we leave hopeful that our eternal position will never change. See, the cross is practical. Christ and Him crucified. The further away from the cross you get, the further away from Christ that you get, the more you rely on yourself, the more you see things not clear and the more hopeless you become because the cross is a place that we are all leveled and and i even as i was writing this this down i think i wrote it wrong actually if you have a manuscript this morning you should change it i don't like it because because what i said is we come to the cross this way and we leave the cross this way and what hebrews 12:2 says is something dramatically different Hebrews 12, 2. Anybody? What do we do with Jesus? We what? Fix our what? Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the shame of the cross. See, what Paul is saying is he is relentless in verse 2. The reason why he doesn't get beyond Christ and him crucified, the reason why he doesn't know anything among them except Christ and him crucified is because that is the source of salvation, but Christ is the source of our life. He is the solution to the nagging issues of your life. He is the reason you are alive today, but he's also the motivation to change today in your life. And so, and so Paul, Paul's message to the Corinthian church is the same message to us. Don't get away from Christ and him crucified. And there is, there is a war going on, both directly and indirectly, to wipe out Christ from church, from worship, from preaching, from the academic world. The academic world, you understand this, the academic world is trying to invalidate the life of Jesus Christ. The academic world would say this, even Christian scholarship would say this, that the Jesus you know in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wasn't the real Jesus. We have to find him in history and and put him back together through a historical process, and you can't trust this Jesus. It is a lie and it is a heresy that's alive and well today because because what what is against us, what the war going on is to get rid of this simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
And what the Corinthian church was doing was trying to say, there's more. There's got to be more. That is too simple. Jesus Christ isn't enough for me to live a life to the glory of God and live a life that is, that is faith-driven and to live a life that I could have joy. That's, there's got to be more. What's the missing component? Who has the answers? Where is the answer to the mystery? And Paul says, you already have it. And the answer to that question is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Don't get too far away from it. At this church, Lord willing, we will relentlessly pursue that message until the end. And the last thing is this, is it was pointed. Paul continually pointed to Christ. He pointed back to Christ. He says, the message isn't about me. The, the, the play of the day, what people of the day were trying to do is say, follow me, follow my eloquence, follow my lofty speech, follow my wisdom. And Paul says, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to continually point you back to Jesus Christ. And it is a simplistic message that is the deepest thing we'll ever know. And God gave it to us foolishly on purpose. <laughs> he gave it, it's a foolish message. And it's the reason why in this next, and we're, we're going to just touch on it now and we'll, we'll pick it up next week, is, is it leads us to this foolish presentation of the gospel. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. We're going to wrap this up quickly, but look at verses 3 and 4 again. He says, and I was with you in weakness and in much fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The long and the short of those next two verses is this, is that Paul said, I get it. I finally understand it. I'm not, I'm not trying to make excuses for God. I'm not trying to make excuses for this foolish message. I'm ready to engage in the culture. I'm ready to engage with people at my work and in my home and in my areas and spheres of influence. I'm ready to engage them, and I'm going full bore into it, knowing that when I explain the gospel to people, it's going to seem like it's crazy talk. And sometimes out of fear and trembling and weakness, we are silent because we say, ah, it, just is, it just doesn't make sense. I'll wait until I find a way that it makes sense. I'll wait till I have a, an in with somebody that it will make sense. I'll wait until I find a way to do it that actually makes sense. And the answer to that kind of reasoning and logic is there will never, never be a time when the gospel makes sense to somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ. Why? Because God intended and he gave us a foolish message in the hands of a foolish messenger and gave us a method that is equally as foolish. He says, I want, I'm going to entrust you with this message, and it's foolish even though you believe it now. And I want, to bring, I want you to bring that to other people. Anybody here feel weak and inadequate and fearful of, of bringing that message to people? Anybody feel that way? Listen, if you feel that way, you're in good company. Because you're right there with Paul. And Paul was right there with Moses. And Moses was right there with Isaiah, and Isaiah was right there with Jeremiah. (laughs) 
If you, if you are, if you think that you have it wired, I think sometimes we think this, have you ever thought about this? Well, if I just could come up with a presentation that, that was locked and loaded and had all the answers to everybody's question and I could be eloquent and I can just say it and, and, and people would be left going, man, you've answered everything. You've answered all of my questions. It made sense. And, and finally, like, you, you, that presentation was just, was just perfect. That is, not what the, that is not the way God designed it. If we're looking for that kind of magic magical tool or magical key, we'll never find it. And if we do, we're going to make people followers of us and not Jesus Christ. Listen, if you believe in Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior, it is a miracle. (laughs) It's a miracle because it doesn't make any human logical wisdom sense. Anybody that yields their life to Jesus Christ, it's a miracle. And we, and we, bank on and we trust that God would demonstrate his power and the work of the Holy Spirit when we give the message to people. We're going to stop there for sake of time and we're going to pick up and and re-explain verses 3 through 5 and then pick up in verse 6 next week. But I I leave you just uh, with, with the thought again. Here's the thought. And what a great morning. What a great illustration of the gospel through baptism this morning. But remember this. We are weak in a bad way. We're very weak. We're disunified. We're ineffective. We are hopeless. We are shameful. We are arrogant. The further away from Jesus Christ and the cross that we get. Every day, every day, we should be coming back to Jesus Christ and coming back at the foot of the cross, remembering that we brought nothing to it. Remembering that there is nothing in us that God says, I see that in you, I save you. No, we are saved only because he called us. So every day we come back to the cross, and every day we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we have hope, and we have unity, and we have joy. And we, in the midst of weakness, we have strength, and we actually can glory in our weakness. If you ask the question, why did God do it that way? I have no idea. It doesn't really make sense to me, but I do know this. He gave it to us in a way that strips us from all self-reliance. He does it in a way that strips us of all self-dependence. And he does things in a way that causes us day in and day out to trust him. Listen, and every day that we trust him, every day that you choose to trust him is a day you mature and a day you grow. And that's how he set it up. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, this passage, and I thank you for uh, the fact that Paul resolved himself to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. And so often, Lord, we try to outthink you. In our own wisdom, in our own intellect, we try to outthink the gospel. We try to outthink the simplicity of the gospel. And instead of just trusting you and relying on you, we're striving so hard to figure out some other way than that way. So Lord, I do pray in my own heart and in our lives as a church that we'd stop that striving and we'd yield ourselves to you. We would trust you every day in every circumstance that we'd stop making excuses for you and stop blaming you and simply trust you. 
We love you. We thank you for this morning. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Three things. Three things as you leave. First is this. It is Family Sunday, and so uh, you can stay around pretty much as long as you want, but there's nothing organized for you. Um, So you can sit and chat and talk around here, although if you stay around too long, you'll pick up chairs, which is great. Uh, But stay around or get get to your barbecues uh, because there's no children's classes, no equipping, equipping classes today. Second is uh, starting in July. I just want you guys to remember that July, uh, we will only have one service in the morning and we'll have something at night. Uh, a time at 5 o'clock every July Sunday night. We'll eat together as a church, which means we get to watch kids interact together and play together. And some of the older men act like kids. Uh, and I think that's great. Uh, we'll do that. There'll be a class for adults and things for kids those nights. And the last thing is, next week we get to commission our youth ministry team who are going to Philadelphia uh, to work with Ryan and Bethany Harvey uh, for the week, and we're going to commission them. They are very close to raising full support, and if you go in the lobby to the left of the lobby, you'll see some envelopes on the wall. Uh, what those are designed for, and there's different denominations, uh, not like Baptist and Reform, but different uh, monetary denominations. That'd be pretty cool, though. We'll see. I'll be watching. Where do you line up? But, uh, but we'll put uh, different dollar values, and what you can do is take an envelope, put that dollar value in, and hand it back in the box, and that's a way we'll um, hopefully close that last little gap of raising full support for them. Very exciting. I can't wait to hear what God's going to do in and through that team. And uh, even with Ryan and Bethany in in Philadelphia. So we'll commission them next week. So come anticipating that. And other than that, we we pray that you'd have a great day. I know this is uh, a day of, you should have a time of sobriety and just a time of remembrance of uh, two freedoms that you have. Uh, Remember the freedom that it cost you to to meet openly this way. And that cost uh, the blood of men and women's lives. And, uh, and we do take that seriously and we remember that today. And then remember the freedom that you have in Christ that cost Christ his blood uh, on the cross. And we revel in that because we can worship God today openly in every place. So uh, remember that today as you barbecue and enjoy uh, the time. So we will see you again next week.